Like what you want the first conversation to be is like an amazing trailer where you understand the story and plot point. You understand this huge problem and you understand why your hero is selected to then go, go after and solve this problem. Excellence, professionalism, innovation, and collegiality. These are the values the Sam and Walton College of Business explores in education, business, and the lives of people we meet every day. I'm Matt Waller, Dean of the Walton College, and welcome to the Be Epic podcast. I have with me today Ernest Sweat, who is a venture capitalist, and he grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. He then went to Columbia University for undergraduate, and then he received his MBA from Northwestern University. And since then, he's uh, been involved in um, the finance industry, uh, especially um, venture capital for quite a long time. But you you started your career more in equity research. That's is right. that right? That's right. Yeah. And um, what made you decide to move over to alternative investments from traditional? Yeah. So I, for me, well, it, it makes a lot more sense now after now that I'm here and found what I believe is my calling, being a venture capitalist. Uh, but taking a little bit further back, you know, growing up in Little Rock, I had two people investors as parents. Like, I feel like they would have been amazing venture capitalists because they invested in people. And it wasn't just something they told me and my sister to do and with volunteering stuff. They, they actually, their professions were investing in people. So my dad uh, is a CS grad, uh, ended up working for the Workforce Development Agency in our, of the state of Arkansas, becoming a director of IT. And, you know, if that's not enough, he was also a full-time pastor since I was uh, 10 years old. Um, and then my mother just retired a couple years ago. She was a science teacher for Little Rock Public School um, as a, in middle school. And so those two lived out kind of one of our big ethos or, you know, values, uh, which is equipping others. You know, obviously education was really important, but making sure that in careers we have that can be, you know, give us a good well-being, that we're acquiring knowledge that can help others reach their self-actualization. And so fast forward, venture capital for me is living that out. And so how I came from equity research on is like equity research was a great foundation for me. I remember at 22, I was deciding between sales and trading or investment banking. And I had a lot of friends that kind of put a, you know, a line in the sand on what they do. But for me, you know, being the, you know, I don't know, just like fully on Capricorn of just like, how do I, you know, become the best person I can? How do I use my skills and improve my areas of opportunity of like growth? I always was good at communication, but I wanted to get even better at it, especially from a business sense. Um, but I knew I also needed to have those financial technical skills of being able to read a P&L, read a balance sheet and interpret how that business is doing. And so for equity research, it was the perfect balance. And so that career was a perfect balance of understanding that every industry has a science and that you have to bring together both these, the micro of what is happening with the company with the macro of going on. And so I covered REITs. 
uh, starting in 2007. So yes, that was a crazy time, but was there from 2007 to 2011. And the reason why, ultimately we can talk about this more, but the reason why I made that shift was I was making recommendations to hedge funds, fund of funds, uh, all these different portfolio managers, but I wasn't putting skin in the game. So it was really just kind of like a theoretical exercise of saying, hey, if I did invest, I would either short X, hold Y, or buy Z. But that's it. You know, you're putting out your opinion, and stuff, but you're not putting any skin in the game. And so that's what really kind of energized me to make that switch. So you're, you're into... Um value chain, broadly mm -hmm. speaking, in more traditional industries yeah. like retail, logistics. What made you interested in that partic those particular verticals? Yeah. I think it's it, the most amazing thing about venture capital to me as a profession is literally no conversation has to be worthless. You can learn something from literally any conversation because everybody has a different perspective and expertise and you never know, you might invest in that area that they're talking about. And so for me, even how I got into venture capital was how do I leverage what I've learned in the past and not throw it away? So many times in our careers, I can speak for myself, I've thought, oh, I got to create a blueprint. So maybe I need to learn how to, you know, be an AI expert. And it's like, no, to get into this industry, I need to know what I'm passionate about, what I have a, a background in to create that and build onto a narrative. And so for me, that was real estate. I cover REITs. At 22, I was having, you know, being on calls, on uh, quarterly calls, asking tough questions to Fortune 500 CEOs. And so that was a basis of like, I know when a real estate company, when they get big, what their problems are and what their pain points are. Now I just need to understand technology and how, what types of technology platforms can solve those problems. And so that was like the impetus of like me com coming up with what I coined value chain tech. Um, and it's taking the HBS, you know, perspective of, um, you know, value chain is a number of primary and secondary activities that a company does to increase the end value or value for the end user. And so I've just only layered that as like a framework for identifying the most pressing pain points that all enterprises need help on. And so for me, the same problems are happening for supply chain, are happening in retail, are happening in manufacturing, essentially happening to all of GDP that's not the 19% of high tech. And so those three issues are quickly, one, our business systems uh, that were typically centralized uh, in the 80s up until 2010s. Um, those systems of technology and people aren't equipped to deal with today's business environment, right? We have both globalization and deglobalization happening at the same time. Two, because of those, uh, that complexity of the business environment, company business leaders and CEOs are seeing that their stakeholders most important stakeholders, their customers and their employees are demanding transparency and speed at an unprecedented pace. And three, we're in quite possibly the wonkiest labor market of all time, right? I like to say from cashier to ML engineer, we don't have enough people to fill the demand. What, what that really adds up to is 
whether you're leading an SMB to a Fortune 1 company, you're expected to do more with less resources over the next 10 years. And so instead of the Silicon Valley kind of, you know, ethos of like software is going to eat up the world, I actually kind of put it on top of his head. Software is going to enhance the world because of those three things I mentioned. It's not going to be the negative connotation of like, it's going to take away jobs. I said we don't have enough people. We need it so people can be more efficient. It's amazing how tight the labor market really is in so many different ways. And, you know, um, a record number of factories being opened right now that are highly automated. Yeah. You know, it's going to take a few years to bring them online. But Absolutely. I've seen some data that is astounding at the number of factories being put in place. You have that on the one hand, and then on the other, you know, you've got uh, generative AI that is going to solve part of the problem. I, I know, you know, I, I constantly hear about how people are able to get a lot more done, responding to emails, uh, making posts, yeah, um, converting one type of um, media into another, yeah. Um, using generative AI, and yeah. not only that, but even helping from a planning perspective. Mm -hmm. And if you think, of, as, as you know, so many of the uh, value chain companies, uh, the companies involved in traditional value chains, a lot of times their weakness is planning. So I would imagine over the next few years we're going to see a lot of new generative AI applications within the value chain space. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, yeah, I, I would agree. I think it's going to take special entrepreneurs who identify what those key pain points are. So pain point one, pain point two, because those are going to get traction when it comes to sales. Again, because you can't just, when companies like Microsoft and Uber, who have you know pretty big war chests, of cash when they're contemplating, hey, do we need a hundred software vendors? And so it's critical now that you're solving a real pain point that people need today or need yesterday, to be quite honest. And so although there's a lot going on in generative AI, we're going to have to have specific, and it's really cool stuff now and all those things you mentioned, but how do we really productize it in a way that it's solving specific industries uh, problems. And so what I look for is like these uh, archetypes of entrepreneurs when they're looking to enhance or accelerate a foundational industry. And so it's like typically two and possibly a third coming up. Uh, one I call the um, innovative insider. So that's somebody who's worked in this industry for a long time has faced a problem and sees that technology can really solve it. And they have the ability to mobilize technologists and product people around them uh, to go along with the vision. The second archetype is the humble outsider. So having somebody who's typically, maybe they come from Silicon Valley, maybe they come from you know, some, some tech background and they identify, hey, that's an, I've done research, that's a problem there. But I'm gonna check with customers and I'm going to bring on advisors uh, and employees who understand the nuances of those industries. So I'm not frightening 
my customer a lot of times from this like long-term vision, but I'm able to, you know, bring them along and grow with them. And so I think that's the second thing. And then the third is, you know, for lack of a, a good name yet, I'll take suggestions, but I think essentially the person I call like a bridge. Um, this is somebody who is highly technical, but also has maybe a family background in in an in industry. Maybe their family always had like, let's say for a construction tech company, their family has had a construction company for the last four generations. And then they went to MIT or Caltech and, and have just now say, hey, I can bring these two worlds together. So that's the third archetype, but we're going to need special entrepreneurs, which I think despite all the uncertainty that's going on, we're going to start to see that next wave of awesome entrepreneurs going after really big problems. I noticed, uh, just diving into a little detail, you were a Series A investor in freight waves. Yeah. And um, I also am impressed with freight waves. I met them yeah, about the time things. you were, were investing in them uh, a few year, a couple of years ago. Um, but I love the vision of them becoming the Bloomberg of logistics. Yeah. What a brilliant, it's, it's such an yeah. easy vision to get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you've ever used a Bloomberg terminal yes. or read Bloomberg media, you get it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they've got this tool called Sonar. Absolutely. Which clearly is analogous to a Bloomberg terminal. And then you've got all the news for, yeah. for logistics. How did you... So I'm asking this to kind of try to understand how did you learn about them? Yeah. And how did you decide to invest in them? Yeah. So I learned about them through um, like my job is it, so it's, it's funny because most people when asking like what a venture capitalist does, um, I have some friends is like, that's not real work. You just like <laughs> have coffees and talk to people, hear people's pitches. Uh, and talk to LPs and ask for money, right? Um, but it's a little bit more nuanced than that. And so having a prepared mind, when I joined Prologis, uh, which is the largest warehouse owner in the world, yeah, um, and I joined as a founding team member of their venture group. This is the first time they ever had a venture capital Oh, group. I didn't know that. And so, yeah, I'd been there for, at that point, probably a year and a half. And so I developed, you know, I saw that we had a thesis around logistics and particularly seeing that there was so much cost associated with delays uh, due to not having efficient uh, trucking um, and not really having data around it. So we built a thesis around how can we get more data within trucking, which could take out a lot of the delayed costs uh, are, that are associated with waiting times. Anytime I was talking to a seed or pre-seed investor who also followed that vertical, uh, the logistics vertical, I would mention it. And, you know, eventually we, we spoke with Fontanellis, which was an early investor in them earlier than us. And they mentioned, hey, you, should guys, you guys should meet uh, Craig. And so brought him in and, you know, loved the team, loved, like you mentioned, the vision was clear. And I would say he was a, if I go back to my archetypes, he was an innovative insider, you know, comes from a trucking family um, or actually he's probably even pushing more of the kind of bridge, as I mentioned, because having experience, you know, looking at technology and then coming from a family that built one of the biggest uh, trucking companies in the country, 
it, it just merged both worlds. And so given we knew, you know, his expertise and then the other thing we always look for, and I always look for as an investor is, am I the right investor that can actually help them get to the next stage? Whether that's sitting on their board, being a board observer, making the right relationships, and then also looking at the strategic value that we could possibly add. And so there was just a lot of synergies between what Prologis, you know, their footprint in the entire world and how many trucks go to their, their warehouses and what Freightways was trying to solve. And then you also invested in um, Platform Science. Yes. Which is another impressive company. Yeah. The, th the thesis around there was still like, how do we streamline trucking? Uh, and we made a few other investments as well, like Y Systems, which helps with automating the, the routing systems for commercial delivery as well as trucking um, companies. But ultimately, it's like, how do we streamline this so we can make this more efficient? We're not wasting gas, obviously, and our diesel. We're not hurting the environment, and we're getting the most out of each truckload. Uh, and platform science actually was also a you know thesis was built around the ELD mandate. So we knew there was a point where all trucks needed to have some type of electronic system to track how long truckers were on the road, where they are, all those things. So, Ernest, you know, I, I first started following venture, venture capital in the mid-90s. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've seen a lot of ups and downs in the yeah. business. There's times when it's really hard to raise money for a fund. <laughs> yeah. And there's times when it's easier. It's yeah. never easy, but it's easier at times. Yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the current state and yeah. what you see for the next few years. I understand how things can go um, and never to get too high on the highs. And so, you know, but for my venture career, pretty much until... No, that's true. I mean, yeah. you, you started at BMO yeah. uh, Capital Markets Summer July of 2007. So you have, you've been through the tough stuff. And seen companies that were around hundreds of or hundred years disappear disappear so I, that was my entrance into the workforce so i was like <laughs> oh it can go like this yeah why did i pick finance <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> and um you know i took that you know when people don't have advice they usually say uh when facing tough times they're like it builds character so i just kind of embraced it okay this builds character and you have to actually what i really got it boils down to is you got to find value for your customer base despite what's happening in macro. And so I take the same application to, to now, right? When things were so up and then we realized in 2020, oh, we don't have to meet founders. They can be anywhere. We can just give term sheets in over Zoom. That took a run up. We also had obviously well-documented a lot of tourist investors who hadn't done much early stage or even growth stage doing more of that. Um, and so prices went up and it seemed like a lot of people could get money, not to mention, you know, VC firms were raising a lot of money as well. But now things have changed as we've seen the continued, um, people like to go to the denominator uh, issue for LPs, right? Like their public's uh, stock or their public portfolio is so far down that it's, they're not at the levels that they want of, of allocation versus you know, now venture could represent when it's only supposed to be 10% of their entire endowment. Now it's 25, 30%. And so because of that, 
we've definitely seen a drawback um, on on valuations or just a stall in in, in raising capital, um, especially towards the end of 22. And it's still been slow, I would say, in Q1. Um, but things are getting funded. I think it's a great time to to raise or, or start a company and raise at the early stage. So I'm talking about pre-seed, seed, and even seed to A because you have an understanding of what valuations actually are today. Where I'm seeing a lot of trouble is A to B, especially if you got a really high valuation in A um, and from in 2020 or 2021 and you haven't really grown into that valuation. I think you're just going to have an influx of more people starting new companies. Um, but when it, it, it really drills down to now of understanding what your narrative is, why are you starting a company? Why are you uniquely equipped to solve this problem? Why do you wake up every morning wanting to solve this problem? And then finding the right investors. So would you mind walking me through your due diligence process? Mm -hmm. what, how do you go about that? Typically, the process is first meeting with a company. That first com conversation is critical uh, with me. And the thing I'm getting at, I really, sometimes I don't even want to go want them to present the deck, but I just want to understand like who they are, what drives them, um, what's the origin story of this company. So that's the first conversation. Then I'll request... So the data room, so their financials. I love looking at the financials, what they're thinking, understanding, and I'll dig into, this is where I use my equity research background, digging into their assumptions, what assumptions are they making. Um, I love to look at um, their product roadmap and any technical IP just to understand what is maybe defensible if they're leaning really on the kind of technical risk. And then the other thing is I like to look at the sales, uh, sales deck. Because how you're positioning yourself to your customer base is really where I like to lean in. Um, obviously, you know, coming from a pretty technical family, dad a CS uh, grad, um, sister is um, a, a data scientist. Um, I've picked up a lot of that stuff and have a strong network in that stuff. So I know what to ask and, and who to introduce them to to get even more uh, technical diligence. But it, I think a lot of the lacking in the industry or areas of opportunity is like understanding, even at the early stage, what is the business risk? And so where I like to take that in the next step of diligence after, you know, asking the questions I've seen from the data room, I like to point out two to three people within my own network that can fill that persona. Because there's one thing to get, you know, do customer references once you've gone down a path of looking to doing, you know, writing up a term sheet. But who of those customers who have agreed to do that aren't going to say amazing things? They're using the product. Well, actually, sometimes they don't say the most amazing thing. That's one point of advice. Entrepreneurs, if you uh, have somebody on your reference list as a customer, let, they need to say the NPS is like 15, like they, at a bare minimum. Um, but for me, I like to have a win-win-win where I have a trusted uh, executive that I've, I've known for a while that could be a buyer of this technology. Um, and so they get to understand what's out there. The founder gets to actually have a chance to get a sale. Even if I don't sign up to, you know, invest in the company or not, they get a shot on goal. And then I get unfiltered feedback from that executive. Um, 
And then lastly, the entrepreneur gets to see, hey, this is what you get from me starting day zero. I like to help with leads on customers because that actually has impact and revenue. So that's that's really like- So that's part of your big value add. I, I love doing that. I love like meeting people. I love understanding what they've dedicated their lives for. Um, and I like being a bridge. That that's what I live for. A lot of value. Yeah. What what's your approach to board involvement and governance with your portfolio companies? So you learn something new every day. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say that being open to that. I think a good board is like a great basketball team, um, and maybe the better equivalent is like a a great AAU basketball team. Just understanding different boards will have different constructions, and um, you need to be able to flex different roles based on who's there. And ultimately, it should be about serving the company and that founder and helping him or her make the best decision uh, for the company and growth. How, how do you prepare your portfolio companies for exits? I think that's a, you know, I probably don't have a great answer right now, but I think that's something that a lot of investors and entrepreneurs should be thinking about based on, you know, if you're at a certain clip or a certain stage, is there a soft landing or even a good landing that doesn't take you to like where you thought you wanted to be or you uh, strive to be? Because I think I tell friends this all the time, even the most well-informed kind of person who follows technology or um, or tech adjacent companies. There's so many companies that are still private that you think are public. Stripe. Absolutely. Stripe. I forget all the time that Stripe is still private. Yeah. And so uh, there's just a lot of companies that are kind of waiting on the sidelines until the public markets get better. Um, and then they'll finally have those exits. And so kind of a waiting game. You've given some really good advice along the way of this during this conversation, but any other advice you would give for uh, young entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think you know, especially in this environment, it's a safe in- environment and in college where you can just try out new things and while you're in school. I would say definitely exploring what are you really passionate about, um, and a lot of times you can learn on someone else, like even interning at a startup to see if if that's the right environment that you want to either start your own thing in or if it's like a little bit later where you're at like a Databricks or you're at a a a more growth company um, that's still you know high growth and still has those elements of like there's a lot to learn um, but maybe it's not so chaotic so just even being able to explore the things I was always told not sure it's the great advice or not, but like your twenties are about figuring out what you don't want to do. Uh, and if you figure, if you look out and figure out what you like doing, that's even better. Um, and thirties are what you figuring out what you like to do, and then in forties and fifties, that's you I do like it. that. I see yeah. that. Yeah. Well, you know, you you mentioned like doing an internship, yeah. Um, because so many times it seems like students wind up going just with big companies for their oh. internships, but. Uh, so we we created this program called the Venture Intern Program, mm-hmm. um, which is specifically 
to help early stage companies find interns and and pick interns and and to provide them with a, f- a format for providing an internship for a student. Yeah. And then making the students aware uh, of these opportunities. That's awesome. We've been doing this for maybe, I don't know, four or five years. I'm not sure the exact time. And sometimes then they stay on. Yeah. Permanently. They yeah. say, I really do like this. Or they say, no, I think I'd rather work for a large company. But in either case, they've really learned something about themselves and what they like. And even if they don't want to work in a early stage company, I think that knowledge of what it's like is valuable for Absolutely. the rest of their career. Yeah. Well, Ernest, thank you for taking time to do this. And it's been fun talking to you, getting to know you. Thanks, man. Uh, look forward to it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. On behalf of the Sam M. Walton College of Business, I want to thank everyone for spending time with us for another engaging conversation. You can subscribe by going to your favorite podcast service and searching Be Epic, B-E-E-P-I-C. 